I didn't see you there. Before I get episode 60 underway, I need to announce that Mel McKenzie, a collection manager in the Marine Invertebrates Department at Museum Victoria, is giving a presentation about her experiences in marine invertebrate research in the Weddell Sea on the 5th of June at the museum in Melbourne. Links are available on the Facebook page and at the blog. It's probably the best night out you can have on June the 5th for 10 bucks. I'll be there and if you're in Melbourne and free on the night and have 10 bucks, I hope to see you there. But of course I won't be there because I'm in a dive hut on the shores of Ross Island where I'm going to tell you about the First World War and its wake. I covered the wartime service of ITAE personnel in episode 60. I'm going to extend that coverage to some other Antarcticans and Frank Hurley, whom I left out of episode 59 for reasons that I hope become obvious. Edgeworth David advocated for and was put in charge of a new group within the Australian Armed Forces, the Australian Mining Corps, in 1915 at the age of 57 and the rank of Major. The miners advised on trench and tunnel construction and the sighting of wells specific to ground Australian soldiers were to occupy. His war work was most notable for the mining of German positions during the Battle of Messines, during which engineers of the Australian, British and Canadian miners played an underground game of cat and mouse with German counterminers to lay a system of 26 tunnels under the German positions in accordance with David's overall plan. An estimated 10,000 German soldiers died during the detonation of 454 tonnes of ammonal explosives laid in the tunnel systems. Douglas Mawson spent the war as a major in the British Ministry of Munitions, helping ensure the supply of shells reached the front to sustain the British side of the War of Attrition. Hubert Wilkins, on first hearing about the war in 1916, while still in the far north, under the increasingly dissolute leadership of Wilhelmia Stephenson, made preparations to head south to join the fight. At the same time, news of his father's death reached him, putting a return to Australia at the top of his agenda. He walked 600 nautical miles to Banks Island and travelled by boat from Alaska to Ottawa. The Canadian Navy wanted to use his high latitudes sailing experience but Wilkins was determined to visit his mother and join the Australian Armed Forces in some capacity. From New York, he caught a steamship largely full of Canadian officers' wives bound for England. The ship was torpedoed by a German submarine. Wilkins survived the sinking aboard a packed lifeboat, which was spotted by a friendly corvette, the ship kind. While in London, he met Kathleen Scott, and independently of her, as she wouldn't have anything to do with anyone associated with that cur, Ernest Shackleton, Frank Hurley, working through his images and films in the wake of the ITAE. The loquacious Hurley and the laconic Wilkins got along well and spent much of Wilkins' time in London dining together and visiting clubs and catching shows. Wilkins returned to Australia after a seven-year absence, making a brief visit to his widowed mother and signing over his interest in the family farm in South Australia to his brothers. He sought a commission in the Australian Flying Corps, precursor to the Royal Australian Air Force at Laverton. The medical examination found he was colour vision impaired, but given the era and the pressing need for service personnel, this was overlooked. Of greater concern was the state of his feet, 
which after years of maltreatment, such as walking 600 miles in the Arctic, weren't travelling especially well. Wilkins' determination bludgeoned its way through the medical bureaucracy and his second lieutenant commission came through. He did fly for the AFC, but his photographic skills proved his more important talent, often going aloft on reconnaissance flights to record German troop movements and defensive structures. It was his proficiency with cameras that brought him to the attention of the newly instituted war records section, specifically one of its chief operators, Charles Bean, a civilian journalist selected to document Australian efforts during the war by a ballot voted on by the Australian Journalists Association. Given the honorary rank of captain, Bean chose a staff of artists, writers and photographers to document Australians at war. He couldn't have chosen much better on the matter of photographers, getting both Lieutenant Hubert Wilkins and Captain Frank Hurley. Between them, the two polar veterans covered the war records section's requirements for historical documentation, Wilkins' preferred arena, and propaganda and publicity, Hurley's remit. Hurley incurred Bean's frustrated wrath for his habit of editing images to maximise their impact. Hurley was especially talented in this arena, and the results of his efforts remain impressive even in an era where Photoshop is available free for a month-long trial and people who can use it to its full effect are increasingly common. But Bean didn't want Hurley altering the images he captured. Bean ordered Hurley to stop tampering with the images. Hurley kept on tampering. Bean had Hurley redeployed to Palestine to make him someone else's problem. Wilkins, on the other hand, pleased Bean immensely. One of Wilkins' first assignments was documenting the damage done to Hill 60 by Edgeworth David's miners. The thousands of dead German soldiers made a huge impact on him. Wilkins' diaries of the period make for some hair-raising reading, and while he gilded the lily with some of his later memoiric essays, the hair-raisingness of his exploits at Ypres are backed up by his being wounded nine times his receiving the military cross and bar for conspicuous acts of courage, and in that leader of the Australian forces, Sir John Monash, and war records section artist, Will Dyson, described him as the bravest man in the army and the bravest man who ever lived, respectively. Wilkins spent time with Bean curating the war records section image archives in the aftermath of the war, and it's during that period he'll re-enter the ice coffee narrative next episode. For now, bigger picture stuff awaits. During the Paris Peace Conference, the victors concentrated on dividing up the German Empire. Among the many concessions made during this process, Germany giving up any claim to the territories explored under Drygalski and Filchner amounted to pretty small change, but this was big news to Leo Amory of the Colonial Office. Amory began campaigning, on the quiet, that Britain should seek to claim Antarctica in its entirety, while the rest of the world was distracted in the new peace. Amory wrote off potential French and US territorial claims as based on too trifling a set of historical precedents to warrant attention. De Montdeville's raising of the French tricolore on an offshore island and Wilkes' fictional coastal sightings didn't impress him in light of British control of the Falkland Islands, Norwegian whalers' explicit acknowledgement of British dominion over the waters adjacent to the Antarctic Peninsula in the form of licence fees and tariffs, and British exploratory efforts in the Ross Sea Quadrant. 
Amory didn't even mention Argentine, Chilean, Norwegian and Belgian claims, both tacit and explicit, deeming them too weak to even warrant refutation. To Amory's frustration, focus on the divvying up of German and Turkish interests and the war in northern Russia distracted too many people too much for his secret agenda to get any traction at the one point in history that it stood any chance of success. While claim to the entire continent lay outside his ability to influence his government, Amory did manage to encourage that Britain assert our effective authority over the Ross Sea. While Amundsen's Antarctic successes lay within the area of interest, and Shirase punched well above Japan's weight in the area at the same time, blinkered British thinking, honed to a razor-keen bias in British favour by the scale and longevity of the British Empire to that point in history, meant Amory's ideas managed to successfully hang their hat on the explorations of Ross, Scott, Shackleton and Scott again. Bull was only in the area for profit, and Borschgrevink, nasty piece of work that he was, sailed under British colours and a British expedition name on British funds. Britain would have liked to hold preeminence at the South Pole, but the achievements of past British expeditions in the Ross Sea helped give Amory and his contemporaries confidence that they could successfully claim authority over the region and to use that as a basis from which to expand claims into other areas. Royal Navy hydrographer, Admiral Sir Frederick Learmonth, began researching the historical basis on which nations might claim territory in Antarctica. Learmonth divided the various potential claims into indisputable and opened a challenge, and careful application of hindsight bias in assigning historical events into these categories allowed the eventual report to highlight British priority all over the shop. By placing Bransfield ahead of Palmer and discounting everything Wilkes ever did, Learmonth only left the efforts of the French as a thorn in the side of Amory's ambition. There could be no doubt that de Montdeville and Charcot made valid discoveries in a daily land and Charcot land. Amory brought New Zealand and Australian government representatives into the small circle of interested parties read in to his Antarctic agenda, playing to the concerns about military bases that might establish in the South and threaten public safety and national sovereignty, and economic concerns about resources that might be taken advantage of without any consultation of the nations nearest them. Australian Prime Minister Billy Hughes didn't think the fear-mongering credible and placed the national onus on developing resource use in Australia itself. Edgeworth David and Douglas Mawson, concerned about coal reserves and whale stocks respectively, urged their government to take Antarctica seriously, citing Australian efforts in exploration and continental proximity as the keys to successfully claiming and controlling the resources they helped discover and map. A meeting chaired by Amory couldn't resolve how to carry his plan forward. Recognising past flag raisings presented the problem of French flags flying in inconvenient places, but sending a new expedition specifically to plant flags in a deliberate attempt to claim territory would cost money no one wanted to commit to such a project, and might goad other nations to follow suit, ruining any chance of claiming the lot. And was flag raising enough to give a claim credibility? Everywhere else anyone laid claim to territory, they backed the flag raising up with occupation, a necessary follow-on, given that everywhere anyone ever took their dominionism before that, there were local people already living there. 
the meeting ended with only a vague idea that Britain could claim effective title over the Ross Sea because of what British expeditions achieved there. This required a Norwegian flag raising at Cape Adair be ignored, which seems straightforward enough given Karsten Borschgrevink both made the unflappy flag raised during Bull's Landing and ignored it himself when he returned aboard the Southern Cross and raised a big Union Jack and distributed lots of small ones all over the place. Roald Amundsen didn't head south with any ambition other than reaching the Pole, and his nation didn't follow his efforts up with any form of proclamations or return voyages, so the Brits felt safe in ignoring Norwegian efforts in the region, and ignored Japan's efforts completely, partly out of racism, and partly because of Sir Clements Markham's deliberate order to act as though the scientific findings of Nobu Shirazi's expedition never came to the attention of the Royal Geographic Society. The area west of the Ross Sea, while most closely examined by the AAE under Douglas Mawson, posed more of a sticky wicket due to some 1911 correspondence between British and French governments in the wake of Mawson's work. The question, do you claim this territory, is straightforward enough, but carries with it tacit acknowledgement that the party being questioned has, at least, some reason to think that such a claim might be valid. It was a question that needed asking given that the French could be touchy about dominions, especially when being asked about them by the nation with the biggest dominions on the planet. A response in 1912 indicated that France did claim the territory explored by and taken possession of by de Montdeville in 1840. No specific latitude and longitudes were attached to the French statement, likely because the French didn't know exactly what they could validly call theirs. The British Foreign Office ended up looking to an 1840 edition of the Sydney Herald for the nearest thing to a British acknowledgement of de Montdeville's achievements, finding the span of coast from 136 to 147 degrees east greater than anyone expected. Added to this problematic historical precedent, the 1911 correspondence could be interpreted as asking France if the entirety of what Mawson referred to as Wilkes Land came under their claim, which the French seemed pretty happy with. Deciding that to push the matter might see France claim more than anyone else would be happy with, the Foreign Office let a sleeping dog lie, or a dormir chiens allongeur. But the unresolved question of French interest in a daily land caused consternation for Amory and his fellow Dominionist prospectors. Fear that poking that particular chien might spark French interest, where the British really didn't want it, saw even the assured claim over the Ross Sea postponed until the Imperial Conference of June 1921. Even the new colonial secretary, Winston Churchill, couldn't get a resolution on the matter, and with Amory shifting his focus away from Antarctica on becoming the First Lord of the Admiralty, the question of how and when Britain should make its Antarctic ambitions clear remained unanswered. Going to leave it there this episode, other than to mention that there's an opportunity to visit Hobart in August for the Australian Antarctic Festival. So if you can make it over there, I recommend getting along. I'd love to attend. I think I could record some really good interviews with Antarcticans, and there's an opportunity for me to present at Beaker Street, but that plan currently lies outside the family budget. I know there's a few people that have wanted to help the series financially. Um, if you get in touch with me via the Facebook page or the blog, I can arrange PayPal details and you can help me out towards some airfare. Last year I asked listeners to help me get to Tasmania for some training on the promise of an album's worth of songs, which I am working on. Um, perhaps I can add a new tranche of people to that list of album recipients if people help me get to Tasmania again this year. 
sending greetings this episode to Greta and Harris, two of the loveliest people that I know who happened to meet and fall in love, and now they've made another lovely person, so I'm very grateful for their presence in my life. Take care and appreciate your coffee.